There was a map of Vietnam on the wall of my apartment in Saigon. And some nights, coming back late to the city, I'd lie out on my bed and look at it, too tired to do anything more than just get my boots off. That map was a marvel, especially now that it wasn't real anymore. So begins Michael Hare's Dispatches, one of the great works of art about men and war. It is a touchstone, a talisman, for anyone who dares to tread on such sacred ground. Sebastian Younger is one of the precious few who has inherited the mantle from Hare, a multi-hyphenate talent who pens brilliant books and makes masterful movies. His first doc was Restrepo, self-financed, stripped down, and incendiary. And I remember how I felt when it ended, stunned and speechless, because it had captured something raw and ancient and transformed it into something startling and new, a work of art about men and war. If you haven't seen this one in a while, dip back in. It'll whip your head around and make you think and feel. Without further ado, I give you a conversation with Sebastian Younger. Sebastian Younger, I feel like I've been waiting all my life to meet you. Um, thank you so much for being here and for, for joining us on the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you very much. So it's interesting. I, I sat down. I remember when I first watched Restrepo, you know, soon after it came out, and I was just, um, you know, it just knocked the wind out of me, I think, you know, in, 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 in a number of, of ways, uh, the kind of up close and personal intimacy of it, the depth of the emotion, the, um, and the filmmaking, you know, in a weird way, it's like both the ultimate war movie and the ultimate anti-war movie, you know, in a way. And, um, sitting down to revisit it again, I was kind of astonished at how both, I guess, prescient and vital and kind of timeless it remains. But, but, but hit on the like kind of, you know, is it a war movie? Is it an anti-war movie? Where, you know, where, does your, where, where does your head live with that? Well, first of all, thank you. And I actually watched it last night uh, for other reasons um, for the first time in about 10 years. And I, I was actually really affected by it. It was very, emo- uh, the, the content is quite emotional for me. Um, and uh, and I was pleased that I, 10 years later, that I think it's a good film. My partner, my colleague, and my brother um, was Tim Hetherington. Uh, and I, Tim and I shot all the, he was a British photographer. He and I shot all the, uh, virtually all the uh, footage, uh, combat, everything, the interviews, everything. And we were co-director and co-producer. We did it and we, and we self-financed. Like, I mean, we put in, every penny we had and risked it all. And, um, and Tim was killed covering the civil war in Libya a few weeks after we went to the Oscars, Oscars with Restrepo, uh, in, in 2011 and, uh, real tragedy. So when I say we, it's Tim and myself. Um, yeah. So, so, you know, Tim and I were journalists. I'm a journalist and journalists don't espouse sort of activist positions, right? Like, I mean, we present the world as it is, and I trust our, you know, the sort of adults in the room to come to a mature conclusion about what this nation should and shouldn't do. And so, 
it's not an anti-war movie. It's not a pro-war movie. It's nothing because it's a piece of journalism. And, you know, it's not a piece of journalism in the sense that we're evaluating the big picture and talking to ambassadors and generals, but it's a piece of journalism in the sense that it's a neutral portrayal of reality that's hopefully helpful to our viewers and to the uh, citizens of this country. Well, that that's one of the many things that sort of struck me and, and that moved me is, in a weird way, there's this, you know, there's all the kind of gonzo adrenaline of the filmmaking. Like, you are, you know, up close and personal, you know, and it's balls-to-the-wall kind of immersion journalism. And yet, at the same time, it is a tremendous amount of restraint. And by making your canvas so relentlessly local and controlled and small, it it, it kind of, I think it speaks to those larger questions in, in, in almost a smarter, more nuanced way than it would be if you'd sat with the generals and sat with the, the sort of the, uh, you know, the power brokers who are making the decisions that determine the fates of these lives by not engaging with that and just showing the men and the world, it really, um, it's a profound film. Tell us about the path that led you to this movie, right? So you're, you know, you're writing for Vanity Fair and kind of set the, set the stage and the scene and, you know, the decision to go and embed and spend the time and like when the idea to hatch the movie comes up. So, I, I mean, the first war that I covered was Sarajevo in 1993. You know, I was a climber for tree companies. I was an arborist. I worked, you know, 80 feet in the air, hanging on a line with a chainsaw, taking trees down in pieces and wanted to be a writer. I was sort of writing on the side. I hit my leg with the chainsaw and tore it up. And that got me thinking about dangerous jobs. And that eventually got me to write my first book, which was called The Perfect Storm which was sort of an unexpected success. And but in the middle of all this, while I was writing The Perfect Storm, you know, I was a young guy. I was 30, 31, 32. Um, I, you know, I went to Sarajevo because you know, I was interested in war reporting. There was a civil war going on. And so I spent about six months over there. And, you know, it was much like it was much like the war in Ukraine. I mean, there were the Serb, you know, the Serb Bosnian Serb army was just unabashedly attacking a civilian population center center. And uh, there was a lot of ethnic cleansing and a lot of torture and a lot of rape and horrible, horrible stuff. It, 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 human dignity was at stake and human lives were at stake. And, I, and I, you know, I just like couldn't believe what I was doing and witnessing. And um, so I just kept reporting on war as I was in Sierra Leone during the Civil War. I was in Kosovo during the Civil War. You know, this is all none of this involved U.S. forces. Right. These are just civil wars around the world. I was in Afghanistan in 1996. When the Taliban were taking over, I was back in 2000 with Ahmad Shah Massoud as his forces were battling Northern Alliance, uh, North, uh, battling the Taliban. And then after 9-11, all of a sudden, Afghanistan, this country that I, I adored and had been spent quite a, a lot of time in, was suddenly you know, relevant to my own country, United States. And um, so I, I uh, you know, but I was, in, you know, I, my perspective was completely local, right? I was interested in the Afghans. I was interested in the Northern Alliance. American soldiers didn't really interest me. As the war dragged on, you know, when, when an easy win was sort of squandered by some terrible, terrible strategic and policy decisions and the decision to go to Iraq, as, as an easy win was squandered in Afghanistan, eventually I was like, wow, we're going to be here for a while. I want to know what it's like to be an American soldier. Mm -hmm. I grew up during Vietnam. I, you know, I, in a liberal household, the American military was not something that interested me journalistically, honestly, right? 
But as it sort of went on, I was like, wow, I wonder, American soldiers in Afghanistan, that, that's crazy. Like, what is that like? And this is real combat. This isn't just sitting around drinking tea with the elders and, you know, like, whatever, like the, which is what the soldiers themselves expected in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. They didn't think it would be very violent. Um, this is the real deal. So I, I decided I would embed myself with a platoon um, of U.S. infantry in the 173rd Airborne. They were in eastern Afghanistan in a very violent place called the Korangal Valley. And I was with one platoon that was, that was at a remote location called Outpost Restrepo, named after uh, BFC Juan Restrepo, who was the platoon medic who was killed uh, two months into the deployment. And um, Tim, Tim and I spent a total of, I think we did a total of 10 trips out there, sometimes together, sometimes apart. Uh, we, you know, other than we didn't carry weapons, obviously, we carried video cameras. Otherwise, we lived identical lives to that of the soldiers. I mean, we slept in the, on the ground next to them and the little hooches they built out of plywood. And, you know, it was very remote outpost and they got, you know, we got attacked all the time. We were in a huge amount of combat. Tim and I were both almost killed at many different times, as as was everyone else out there. And I got blown up by an IED, and I got all kinds of stuff happened. And uh, and so I, you know, basically when I started doing, I didn't know Tim yet, but when I started doing this, I convinced Vanity Fair to send me over there for multiple trips. And I thought, you know, if I'm going to be over there, I might as well shoot video. I didn't know anything about it. I, was like, I might as well shoot video. Maybe I can make a documentary. So I started shooting video. It was on my second trip that I that uh, Vanity Fair hired Tim as a photographer. And when he got there, I was like, listen, man, I'm on this cool story. I want to make a documentary. If you're interested, I'm looking for a partner. So he started shooting video about halfway into the deployment uh, in October of 07, which was uh, the third trip in, his second trip and third between the two of us. Uh, he broke his leg in combat, and so he had to sit out some months. And then I jumped in, and I... I got blown up and we just kept sort of swapping back and forth going out there and, and we covered a lot of the deployment. And um, so the thought was, early, I had the thought early on to make a documentary, but I had no idea what I was doing or what I was talking about. And it wasn't until Tim and I sort of partnered together that it became like a, a feasible reality. And, and even then we were very, very far from making it happen. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, that that piece of right, I mean, hair, I think, like literally redefined what long form journalism and certainly war reporting could be in, in, in that book. And it, and it is a, it's a perfect touchstone for what you did in war. Um, so then, like, let's sh let's shift to the movie a bit. So, like, by the time you're and, and I assume you're just shooting and shooting and shooting and you're not worried about, uh, you know, I mean, you're immersed in it. By the time you get to the edit, how much is how much is the editor? How much input are you giving the editor along the way? Do you wait to begin cutting until you've got the entire thing shot, or what's the process in terms of post production and finding the sculpting the story? Yeah, we yeah we waited until everything was shot, and we found Michael Levine, who again is a genius. As far as I'm concerned, is a genius. We got along very well with him. Maya Muma was the associate editor, so the four of us worked very closely, and he would cut. You know, we we you know we, it was a we were in the edit room constantly, and and we would talk through ideas and how to how to structure it, and he would he would put together scenes and we talk about them and where should they go, and you know it's a chess game, and we were extremely involved. I mean, we it was yeah we were involved from the very beginning and all the way through. 
And um, talk about the interviews, because I, I think those, like, when did you shoot the interviews? Those interviews are extraordinary, and um, both in, in terms of, I think, the sort of simplicity and, and like, visual starkness of them, but the, um, the intimacy and rawness that you get. I mean, obviously, you'd, you'd had the bond with the guys from having been through it, but when do you shoot the interviews, and how does that affect the construction and the edit? Yeah, so the so the guys who are based in Vicenza, <coughs> excuse me, the guys who are based the one seventy third Airborne is based in uh, Vicenza, Italy. So after the deployment ended, and a lot of them had families there and whatnot, and so uh, um, when the deployment ended, they came back to Vicenza, and they 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 spent three months there, and then they were going to disperse to other units, and some were getting out of the army, and everyone there was the sort of big dispersal. So. We went to Vicenza to interview them um, a few weeks before they, the, they were all they were going to disperse. You know, when you interview someone in combat, in a combat environment, they're, you know, psychologically, they're, um, you know, they're, they're, they're self-protective. They're emotionally protective of themselves. So they don't really want to talk about if something's scary or they don't really want to talk about how sad they are that someone got killed. I mean, they don't like they're doing a job and their emotions get in the way of the job. Right. <clears throat> afterwards, not immediately afterwards. I mean, the first thing they did was go to a bunch of bars and drink a lot. And, you know, it's, I mean, you can imagine what it was like in Vicenza when the 173rd came home, you know, get that out of your system. And eventually things are going to catch up with these guys. Right. So um, they started having real emotional consequences of the, you know, a couple months in like so when we when we caught them, they were in a you know safe place, emotionally safe place, so they could talk with real honesty and a lot of feeling about the the psychological consequences of all this. Um, and we'd given them enough time for those consequences to start coming out. And so we went over there. We brought a DP and a sound guy, and we set up a little mini mini studio on post on the military base, and. Um, you know, just over the course of like four days, one after another, we interviewed like, you know, a dozen guys or so. Not everyone in the platoon, but maybe a dozen guys. And um, very, very emotional. And those guys, you know, they were all of them. Everyone in the room, the DP, me, Tim, everybody, we were all at times on the verge of tears. You know, I mean, it just was super emotional. We knew guys who'd been killed. All of us, including Tim and myself, were experiencing, you know, what has come to be called PTSD. Like we, we were in, all of us were in it and it was very, very emotional. And we shot in a very simple way, very tightly, you know, we had a wide shot, but also very, very tight framing on the close up. And, um, you know, I realized like, and there was one point, there was a guy named uh, uh, ER, Sergeant Aaron ER, and he was a tough guy. They're all tough guys, you know, and he was talking about someone who, who a, a guy that he, you know, he was close to who was killed out there. And he, and he was trying not to cry. And the, this battle was happening on his face. And you see it's like one of his cheeks sort of twitch a little bit. Yeah. And I realized like, damn, that, like the human face is at least as dramatic as the most dramatic combat footage. Like the human, nothing actually can compete with it. I mean, you watch a very tightly framed shot of a tough young guy trying not to cry. Forget it. It's over. Like you're you're done. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's absolutely devastating and it's incredibly dramatic. 
And so when people say, oh, it's, you know, you know, I have sort of lefty friends or it was like, oh, it's just, you know, Restrepo is a combat movie. There's all this combat in it, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you know what? Actually, it's a 90 minute movie, 90 some minutes. And there's probably a total of three minutes of combat in it. It's actually not that much. Um, it, it, it Without all the other stuff, it wouldn't work. Like it's the other stuff that made that film. It wasn't the combat footage. Yeah, I want to um, I, I want to go back. I was thinking for a second as you were talking a moment ago about that archival footage that you know that bookends the movie, the the footage of Restrepo um, himself, and like when it came to you in terms of the edits, okay this is where this material belong. Like, A, I'm curious how that material ends up in your hands to begin with, and then how you begin to integrate it into the narrative and, and the choices yes. associated. So we had, I had, you know, we had some shots of Restrepo in, in combat that I had shot in June of 07. You know, I didn't know that a month later he was going to be dead. He was just one of the soldiers. He happened to be the medic. And, you know, I sort of picked him out later. I was like, oh, my God, there he is, right? And, um, uh. But so as we were doing the edit, um, I, I just put the word out to the guys in the platoon. Hey, does anyone have any footage from Vicenza in the lead up to the deployment of of of, of Juan Restrepo? It'd be really nice to have. And and so we the, the movie actually starts with footage of Restrepo and three other soldiers on a train in their last blowout, in, in their training in Italy, going to Rome for their last blowout weekend before they go to war. And, you know, they're all completely drunk, right? And as soldiers do. And uh, and then we reprise that footage at the end of the film. And now you realize, you know, they're in the footage they're saying, yeah, we're getting ready to go to war. And we're getting, you know, and, you know, and, and, and you don't, and you you don't know at that point that we're going to be dead in two months. When you see it again at the end of the film, Restrepo saying, we're getting ready to go to war. Like it all of a sudden has a whole new meaning because you realize like that dude died. Like, and so, so that came to us from the soldiers. Um, it's a precious 30 seconds of film. I mean, it's very, very brief, but it, it's absolutely crucial in the film. Well, it's def it's defining, right, in a fundamental sense, in terms of you know when they're going into it, it's an abstraction. You know, the idea of war is an abstraction in a, in a fundamental sense, as opposed to by the time you play it at the end, like they've all been forever changed by it. Yeah, that's right, changed or killed. Yeah, yeah. Um kind of just zooming out for a second here, which is uh, what are you, to the extent that you're comfortable, you know, sharing it, what are you working on now and how do you make the determination between, you know, what belongs on the screen versus what belongs on the page and, and, and sort of how have you taken what you've learned from making Restrepo and applied it forward in your work, you know, across all media? Yeah, so, you know, making Restrepo, I mean, a storyline, an arc is an arc, whether it's a book or a film. Like, you know, I found that, you know, I when I made Restrepo, I, I don't think I'd ever seen a documentary, actually, maybe one or two in my life. I mean, I knew nothing about them, but it was kind of cool because I was a completely clean slate. I had no precondition, new preconceptions. I had not been to film school. I didn't have any, I mean, I had no, I had no, I, I had no paradigm for this other than 
what will tell the story best of what I experienced out there? What film will, uh, will, will uh, trigger, arouse the same emotions in me watching it that I had when it was happening? Uh, that, was, that was my sort of gold standard for a scene. Michael cut one scene which was very funny, clever and funny and real. I mean, it was, but it just emotionally, it was a little false. I was like, no, that's, we weren't feeling that way out there. And it would have been a great scene in the film, right? But it was filmmaking. It wasn't reality making, you know? And, and uh, so, and Michael got it, you know, he was, um, but uh, so, you know, after, after Restrepo, Tim was killed. I made a film about him, about how he died and about his incredible career uh, called Which Way is the Frontline from Here? I made that for HBO. And then again for HBO, Sheila Nevins, um, I uh, made a film called The Last Patrol. I made friends with a, uh, a, a Spanish photographer named Guillermo Cervera, who was holding Tim's hand when he died in Libya. He, Tim was bleeding out in the back of a rebel pickup truck. And Guillermo, Guillermo was the last thing Tim saw. Tim, my brother, my friend, my colleague, right? And so I became friends with Guillermo. I mean, it's sort of the brotherhood sort of transferred. And so I took Guillermo and a couple of guys from Restrepo who were out of the service, and we walked along the railroad lines from Washington, D.C. to Philadelphia to Pittsburgh. We weren't, hitch we weren't riding freights, right? We were walking on these swaths of no man's land that cut through America, the railroad lines. And you can, we, we called it high-speed vagrancy. And we were dodging the police because it's totally illegal. And we were sleeping under bridges and getting our water out of creeks. And we were walking right through ghettos and factories and farms and wilderness and suburbs, right through the middle of everything. And uh, we, it was called The Last Patrol. And I made that for HBO as well. And, uh, and then another film called Korengal, which was a different look at that same deployment, going back to the sort of well of footage that we had. And so now um, I'm, I'm not nearly as involved in documentary film. Um, I don't mean this to sound flip, but partly because I need to earn some money. And, and you know, we, we, you know, Restrepo did quite well, but it's, you know, it's a total gamble when you make a documentary if you're going to make, you know, it's a, it's, you know, it's a year out of my life. And in a year I can write a book and, ha you know, get, have a guaranteed income from that and uh, <clears throat> in the form of an advance. And, you know, with, with documentary film, it's just not, you know, you, you do it's it for the shoot. love of the, it's yeah. a crapshoot. And it was one that I've been happy to do. I, I, I mean, I absolutely love the process of making a film and Restrepo changed my life. But um, those days are sort of behind me a bit. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, a, I have a, I'm a father of two little girls, almost six and almost three. I'm not taking risks anymore. Uh, I'm not taking financial risks. I'm, I'm living a proper and sober life. Well, I want to thank you for, you know, taking the time with us today and revisiting the film. And, and I guess more than that, just thank you for the work that you have done for so long. It's been, you know, I know for me personally an inspiration. And, you know, I said jokingly, I've been waiting all my life to meet you, but I sort of have been waiting all my life to meet you. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that, you know, we, we had the chance to sit down and discuss it. And I, and I can't wait to see what you do next. And I'm glad that you're out there, man. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure talking about, <clears throat> about film, about documentary. And thank you for all your great questions. All right. Take care. Thank you to Sebastian Younger for making this jaw-dropping and brilliant film. And thank you for sharing your time with us, explaining how you did it and why. 
And thank you to PFC Restrepo and all the members of Second Platoon. Thank you to Tim Hetherington. Rest in peace. See you next time on The Dangerous Art of the Documentary. The Dangerous Art of the Documentary is a Tillerman Films production. Executive producers are Tiller and Fitz. Our producer is Jacob Miller. Music by Zydepunk. The show is executive produced and distributed by Jake Brennan and Brady Sadler for Double Elvis Productions. Thanks for listening, and please, don't forget to subscribe.